Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. And we're back. We're back, baby! After a six-week hiatus, we are back, and so just let's catch up. We took a, a brief hiatus because our contract ran out with our previous platform provider, and then Collider uh, was bought by Valnet, and Valnet has its own podcast provider, Megaphone. And so it took uh, a little bit to get everything transferred, all the old episodes, over to Megaphone to get everything squared away there. The good news is, is that the podcast is back. We are with Megaphone, uh, and you can now get this podcast wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. You can find us even where you don't want to find us. We're going to be there. That's <laughs> where the podcast everywhere. is. We're everywhere. You're going to open your bathroom, and for some reason, this podcast is going to be there. <laughs> it's going to be horrible. So that's that's where we're at. We're at on this podcast. Also, if you're listening to the episode on the website on Collider, uh, there is a subscribe button on our new player, so you can subscribe to the podcast to have it wherever you normally get your podcast from. Or if you just want to listen on the website, that is that is fine, too. Uh, but we're so excited to be back. In fact, we're so excited that for the rest of 2020, you're going to be getting two episodes a week. Uh, there's so much to discuss, uh, so much we wanted to cover. We've, we've missed uh, having the show. And we're going to start off this week with a super-sized episode talking about the films of David Fincher. His latest film, Mank, hit Netflix last Friday. So this was our opportunity, um, because we haven't really talked, I think, about Fincher since Gone Girl. I mean, we've talked a bit about Mindhunter. We mm -hmm. haven't, ever, I think, ever really done a big Fincher podcast. Yeah, um, I don't think so. Or if we did, that episode is now lost to the sands of time. <laughs> exactly, back in 2014. Yeah. Um, so we're so excited to, to talk about Fincher. He's one of our favorite filmmakers. So we're going to go, we're going to start off talking about uh, some of his commercials and his music videos, and then work our way through his filmography. We'll talk about his shows. We'll talk about House of Cards. We'll talk about Mindhunter. And then we will we'll talk about Mank. Uh, so it's going to be a big episode. We're we're happy to be back, and uh, let's just dive in. Uh, Adam, uh, have you watched a lot of Fincher's music videos and and ads? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a number of them. I, I mean, I think anyone who grew up in the '90s was aware of like the Vogue video and stuff, uh, and then later on learning that that was uh, directed by David Fincher. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's you know essentially where he got his start was doing commercials and then uh i think he did was it music videos and then commercials or commercials and then music i think it was music videos first yeah music video came first because he was working with um rick springfield yeah and that sort of then became a springboard to work at the um he i believe he's one of the founders of the company propaganda yeah and uh he you know and so him and this collection of other filmmakers uh, would start doing TV ads. And one of Fincher's most famous is an anti-smoking ad where a fetus is smoking a, a cigarette. And that's that's pretty much on brand for Fincher, <laughs> that kind of aggressive gallows humor uh, to make a point. Yeah, maybe maybe that was the first thing. I've been reading a number of inter like older interviews with Fincher, and it sounds like... Um, you know, he he got into the music, but he never went to film school. Uh, he grew up in the Bay Area, wanted to be a filmmaker at a young age, um, worked for um, ILM, did some special effects on Return of the Jedi, but, you know, realized he wasn't really like making films there. And so he got out of Dodge and started making his own stuff. But the way he tells it, like commercials and music videos were his film stool that like that was where he could test stuff out. 
but he says back in that time he liked that your name wasn't on them so like it i don't think he was purposely like making works of art that would stand the test of time i think he was experimenting and learning by doing uh, absolutely yeah i mean if you i back around the time gone girl came out I, i did this whole series on the work of david fincher and so i i spent you know hours on youtube just watching old ads he did, old commercial, uh, uh, old ads, old music videos. And you can really see like a lot of it's experimental. Like by that, like, yeah, there's the Vogue stuff, which like comes together as a complete piece, but some of it's just trying things out. And it's like, yeah, if this music video for a band you've never heard of doesn't work out, no, who cares? You know, I'll just move on to the next thing. And that's why, like, he did a Gap commercial um, a number of years ago, uh, but this was like around the time of Gone Girl, I think. Uh, but like that's why directors like him and Spike Jones do commercials uh, is because, number one, you get paid a lot of money. But number two, you get whatever equipment you want so that that's where a lot of filmmakers test out new cameras, new lenses, new effects, um, because someone's paying for it. And as long as you just like show someone holding a bottle of Heineken, you basically do whatever else you want. Right. Yeah, there's I mean, it's I mean, there's still a level of control. But when you're getting like a prestige director, the the company, it's sort of like you do you just make sure, you know, you don't, you know, bad mouth the product. And, yeah, you know, and at the end of the day, like they're going to like no one's going to tell David Fincher how to make a gap commercial because he's <laughs> either yeah. you want him or you don't. And And as we've seen throughout his career, Fincher is more than happy to walk away after his disastrous experience on Alien 3. Yes. Complete and total obstinance. Yeah, I mean that's sort of. I, mean, I think that's probably a good segue right there to talk. Let's let's get into Alien Three, which is his first feature. And uh, if you if you have the Alien box set, whether it's the the DVD or the Blu-ray, there's this great documentary called Wreckage and Rage, which is a warts and all. Like here's how Alien Three fell apart for David Fincher. And there are folks who really like Alien Three to this day. Like like warts and all. Like they acknowledge that it doesn't really have a director um because fincher has disowned it it was kind of cobbled together um but it, it was a process where you know he this was his first film he, the studio was not happy with what was happening and a lot of friction there and it was just kind of a miserable experience where no one really got what they wanted uh out of this project well, and it was kind of retrofitted as well because it had another director with another story mm-hmm. that was set on a planet of monks. Like, uh, Ripley it was like a it was like a wooden planet. Yeah, Ripley would land on this planet with like filled with wooden structures that was populated entirely by male monks. And so you can see, like, when Fitcher came on, they had some sets built, some sets not built, some stuff like they had to retrofit into it. So that's why all of the characters are bald. They are a little monastic in in that's nature. Why they're, they're only little... men. Yeah. yeah, they're a little fanatic in terms of what they believe in and how they feel. Uh, like their their reaction when uh, Ripley first gets to the planet is very strong, very negative. Um, a lot of that stuff is holdovers. And so he was kind of working with that. And I found a really good quote from him. Um, essentially, I love about, people. They stack so well. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but it was essentially like what he wanted to do, because I think there's a lot of talk and he doesn't like talking about Alien 3. Um, there's a lot of talk of like what it is and how it fell apart, but it, it's rare or I, at least I hadn't seen, um, very often like what he wanted to do. So here's what he said. Um, my notion was that the third movie would be Ripley's acceptance of the notion of sacrifice. She'd had the me decade of the first movie. She'd come from the periphery of the story. Anybody could, anybody could be the commander as long as they stuck to their guns and had a moral compass. 
And then the second movie, she found a maternal instinct. And then I wanted the third one to be that she realizes it's not about her generation. It's really about the future. The notion was to put the monster among the wretched. She was going to galvanize the wretched to self-sacrifice, giving up their lives to save people who had banished them and she and should have been outside their scope of interest and that they would find some value in dying for the right reasons. That's a really bummer of an alien story. I mean, but you can really kind of see, get, you can see that it's kind of in there. Yeah, you can see it's getting there. Um, and in that documentary you mentioned, you see him like... <laughs> Do they have the phone calls actually, or is it people recalling the phone calls that would happen? It's more essentially people, every it's more a lot of the documentary is is more like people recalling the conversations, and then you cut to Fincher who clearly just wants to die. Yeah. So <laughs> like there's a lot of we... there's a lot of him with his hands and his his head in his hands, just <laughs> uh clearly miserable in this experience. Yeah, every night he would have to go and call Fox because they were shooting in London. So he would have to call Fox in California and basically beg for what he wanted to do the next day and beg for like keeping what he wanted to do. And this was also I mean, it was unique for a director to do that many takes, especially director um, who hadn't made a movie before. And he's and shooting so I think, film and film is expensive. Yeah. And so they were all like just shocked that he was like spending an entire day on Ripley crawling through a pipe. Uh, they just, just thought it was just falling apart. Yeah, I mean, you know, Alien 3 is not my favorite. I know, again, I know it has its its diehard fans, but it's at least interesting. And I think the documentary that came out of it is is fairly interesting as well. It's It's one of those things where when you see the original ideas for for Alien 3 you can see the outlines of a really strong film that just for a multitude of reasons never really got to where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh you know, I've seen both the original cut and like they tried to as like re They did like kind of a weird assembly cut. Yeah, cuz the film was taken away from them in in editing. They they took it over, they redid the ending. I don't think the chest burst are coming out as like Ripley falls into the thing was supposed to was like Fincher's version. Um but yeah, he essentially just walked away. So, yeah, because he had no more control over it. It's fine. I don't love revisiting it. it like yeah, it looks nice, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's not the one I defend. The one I, I come to the defense of, even though I acknowledge it's very flawed as well is Alien Resurrection. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> sure. um, and then so but his breakout success is his follow up film, which is Seven. Um, and Seven has a fun story behind it, which is that. So Andrew Kevin Walker writes this really dark, really twisted screenplay. And, you know, Fincher sees it. It's like, oh, man, we got and, and, it, and it, of course, has that ending, the ending that's just really, you know, a gut punch for a 90s thriller. Like it's it's not there's it it, it basically spits in the face of catharsis <laughs> and. Fincher's like, I love it. We got to make this. And the studio's like, oh, you got an old draft. That's not the ending we're going with. <laughs> And he, they basically kind of snuck their way around to to get that version because Fincher's like, I only want to do it if we can get it with this ending. Yeah. And um, it's funny if you look on the seven Blu-ray, you can see this alternate ending, which is really bad. Yeah. Um, it basically, you know, if if you if you don't want to be spoiled on an ending that didn't happen, <laughs> basically what happens is that Somerset shoots John Doe and he's like, I'm retiring. <laughs> <And that's it>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like a level of like lethal weapon to consider it revoked. <laughs> you know, like it's just bad. Um, and no, and if that had been the ending, no one really, I think would have remembered seven as much 
Well, and I, I still think seven probably would have been good because it's so visually distinct and dark. Um, but that ending is what we all talk about. Um, yeah. And it's really sort of geniusly. I mean, the genius of the conception of seven is not like from a story perspective, it's fine. It's kind of like a almost like a boilerplate serial th killer film with a really good hook about the seven deadly sins. But what's really cool about seven is that the entire film up until the climax takes place in the rain and it's all muddled. And it's only when like the sunshine comes out that things get even darker. Like that's when they <laughs> confront John Doe. John Doe gives them, gives them like, the most horrible sort of like um, revelations. It's just, it's a really nice twist in use of setting. Um, Seven is a lot of fun. It's a, just, a, it's, it's a dark, dark film. Um, and yet I also feel like it's created a lot of imitators over the years. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, even just stylistically, I think it's brilliant. Uh, and Fincher gave interviews at the time where he said like, even after alien three was a failure, he knew he had one more movie that they'd let him make. Cause he looked around Hollywood and he was like, Oh, I'm a white dude. Uh, they usually let them have one more so I right. can do That's one true. more. Uh, and so we did. Um, I don't know what I really like about seven is story wise. You get to the point where John Doe turns himself in and you're like the, it's like, I know the movie's not over yet. So like what happens next? You have no idea. But I also like the idea that the head is in the box. Like it's already done. Like it's not building towards and the, the revit, the rive. Uh, I think Fincher tells the story that like, he said what he liked about the script was that, uh, you know, it didn't end with, uh, you know, John Doe saying, I've got your wife tied up wherever. And, you know, it ends in like a, you know, a chase to the apartment and John Doe creeping in through the window to like kill her and this kind of ticking clock thing. And that was exactly what the revised script was, um, which is just not good. But I like this inevitability that like it's already happened, like you can't change it. And and once you get that, once he tells you that, once you find out what's in the box, you just your heart just sinks. And you, I remember being like kind of physically ill, even though I knew the ending because I had I pinned up on my wall as a kid. Entertainment Weekly did like the best twists of all time, or maybe it was like the best deaths. And it was like Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box in seven. I was like, oh, I guess she dies in seven. Yeah, I knew the twist as well before I saw the film because a, a classmate had told me about it, um, which I didn't mind because I had asked that because I was at the time I wasn't allowed to see R rated films. So I didn't see seven until I was older. Yeah. Um, but the. Uh, the, 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 the thing about seven, and I, I sort of see this recurring throughout Fincher's filmography is there are certain characters that you can see he has a kinship with, and he has a kinship with John Doe. It, there's this very <laughs> methodical, the character who is most methodical, ruthless, and brilliant, and completely committed to what he is going to do. I'm like, oh yeah, that's Fincher's guy. <laughs> yeah. And that, and, and, and that's the thing. John Doe wins at the end like that yeah. John Doe gets what he wants. He completes his series of seven and you know, that's, you know, I think it's, and also John Doe, we have to, you have to remember John Doe is the one who begins the film. Like the opening credits is John Doe putting together his book. Yeah. Um, and so it's it, to have it bookended that way is, is really fascinating. Um, and yeah, I just, I think it's, it's a, it's one of those thrillers that stands the test of time, not just because it's so well-made and so well-acted, but just because it is so ruthlessly dark. I mean, just think about the Leland Orser scene, just yeah. that one scene alone. 
Well, and the whole, it's so stylistic, like it's a little exaggerated, which mm-hmm. is what I really like about it. Like Fincher is, there are so many allusions to Dante's Inferno, but you do feel like you're in some sort of hellscape, literally. Yeah. Not just like, because it's the city is never named. It's not like this is New York City or this is Chicago. It is supposed to be this unnamed American city where everything is terrible. And Somerset is, you know, giving up because like, what did I do? Like, I make no difference here. Nothing right. matters. <laughs> it's just really uh i also really like that the one thing that rankles john doe is is brad pitt telling him that he's a nut job and that no one will care uh like the he, john doe is obsessed with his legacy like this thing being perceived as this brilliant masterminded plan um and like the idea that he would be uh you know ign- like forgotten or misremembered uh, is the one thing that upsets him yeah, no, I mean, I, to me, the way I remember is is the thing that really wrangles him. I mean, that that does sort of seem to un, to upset him a bit, but it's more that he he is already being misunderstood. That these people are being remembered as innocent victims, rather, oh, yeah, than, yeah, 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 rather than that they're innocent, rather than for their sins. Yeah. So even there, John Doe is afraid that his narrative will be misconstrued. Also, must be said, Kevin Spacey, great actor garbage human being. yeah garbage person yeah we're not, <laughs> not I, I, yeah i wish he was as nice a guy as he was an actor but unfortunately <laughs> that's not, not the case uh we'll be returning to kevin spacey later in this podcast for yeah. when we talk about house of cards um but before we get there let's talk about the game because the game is another one that sort of like it has its diehard fans i've watched the game like four or five times now <laughs> And I can't ever get on board with the game in the same like I, I it's it's feeling like I sort of now begrudgingly respect, but it's it's plot is so everything must happen just so in order for this point to be reached that I have trouble buying into the world that it's building. Um, and at the end of the day, it feels like a redemption for a rich asshole. Yeah, and by Fincher's own admission, and I highly recommend, it's a book called David Fincher Interviews that I got. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think it's for like film school and stuff, but it's a lot of like um, interviews that were done at the time, which really illuminated like, because he's talking like after the game about how much certain people just hated the game, but also talking about like, he's been very upfront about like his idea with the game was to make a movie about movie making and about like creating red herrings and leading you along. Uh, and he remembered being like outside a theater after it got out and one guy came out and was just like, fuck that movie. And he was like, fair, you know, fair. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I understand. Mean, if you view it as a movie, I, I, I even under, even by that metric, like it's a movie about movie. I think there are other films that do that kind of thing better. Yeah. You know, I agree. I don't, I don't love the game. Um, Cause even I think the casting is, I think Michael Douglas is, is solid. Um, but I don't know, like it, it just gets very frustrating when it's continually like you can trust this person. No, you can't. But you can trust this person. No, you can't. And it just like keeps jerking you around and you're just like, ah, just tell me what the thing is. And you and get again, to the like, ending the, and you're like, yeah, okay. and I just and the catharsis of it is just not strong yeah. enough. Like I learned to reconcile with my father's death and then I had a fun birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, I think the original ending, he throws himself off the roof and dies. Uh, so, yeah, that would have been better. That was another way. That was another way to go. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to a film, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And yet I hate sort of the reaction that it has is Fight Club. 
Um, I think Fight Club's biggest problem is that Fincher did his job too well. Yeah. Um, Fight Club, I think, is constantly misunderstood. And I wrote an article about this on the site that even after 20 years, I think people are still misunderstanding Fight Club because they see the world that Tyler Durden represents. And Tyler Durden is sort of a, an appealing kind of populist because he does cite real grievances about feeling marginalized in a highly capitalistic society where you're not valued, where your masculinity uh, is not cherished, you know, where, where masculinity can only fit into certain boxes, where you feel like you've been sold a false bill of goods. But, and of course, it's all very appealing, not just because Tyler Durden is cool, but because he's played by Brad freaking Pitt, you know, like, and the film is so stylized and like slick, like, how could you not buy into that? But you're not supposed to, like, it's a childish fantasy. And really what Fight Club is, is romantic comedy as only David Fincher would make it. It's a romance between uh, the narrator and Marla. And it's about him not realizing that there's someone out there who understands him and who he can love and love him in their own twisted kind of unique way. Um, and sort of him running from that and not understanding like that's actually a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think Fight Club suffers from the same problem that Wolf of Wall Street does, where it's like, you know, retweets do not equal endorsements. Right. Like, it's <laughs> he's satirizing, but it's uh, but even down to like, again, I was reading another interview about Fight Club and he was talking about very purposefully casting the men in the Fight Club. He wanted them to look like scrawny, like just normal dudes. He didn't want bodybuilders. He didn't want big, muscly people. He wanted average 20, 30 something men who were frustrated with their lives because um, that's kind of what it was tackling was this idea of this toxic masculinity and this like, you know, the world owes me and the world has done me wrong. Um, I do think it's interesting generation generationally because I I think and I wonder what I felt of what I would have felt about the film had I been, you know, 25 or 30 when it came out, because um I think a, a Fincher compares it to The Graduate in terms of generation generationally what he was trying to do. Um, whereas, you know, The Graduate was speaking to that very uh, specific kids coming out of college and not wanting to follow in their parents' footsteps. Um, Fight Club, I think, was similarly about, uh, you know, coming out of this consumerism era of the, of the 80s and wanting to take a different path. Um, but I agree. I think the most compelling aspect of it is the romantic comedy, the relationship between Marla and the narrator. Um, and I also think, again, visually, like the entire film is told from the narrator's point of view. Therefore, it, it has this very schizophrenic, fast paced visual style that a ton of filmmakers would mimic because it was cool. But Fincher wasn't doing it because it was cool. He was doing it because it puts you in the headspace of the narrator where you're not entirely sure. Like, did I wake up or like what happened here? Um, like, it's just really fast cuts. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's really visually stunning. That's something I don't think he gets a ton of credit for. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the film doesn't really work if you don't view it through the lens of a romantic comedy uh, through and through that romance, because otherwise, like, you can't say it's really a critique of consumerism because David Fincher is a commercial director. Like, you know, you can't say it's an indictment of celebrity culture because it stars Brad Pitt. Like when when Brad Pitt is like, we are all grown up to be, you know, be convinced that we're, you know, movie stars and millionaires, but we won't. It's like you're a movie star and a millionaire. So when you have a character played by an actor who is those things, what does that mean? And what it means is that like, it's not that the grievance is necessarily false, but it's not the point of the film. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think people sort of don't realize that that Fight Club is a two-step. And the first step is like, yes, these are real grievances, but the, the, the question is, is how do you react to them? 
And the question is, do you find something worth living for or do you find something worth destroying? Yeah. And the Tyler Durden pass is you have to destroy everything. And that's childish. Um, and that's sort of the opposite path of the film. But like some people just don't get it. And so yeah. that's always sort they're of like, thing. yeah, anarchy. They're like, hey, you want to start a fight club? It's like, no, <laughs> fight clubs that. are bad. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, I do. Again, I think it's getting at that um, generational thing of like, OK, kids who were raised, their parents like were uh, affluent in the 80s through like the Reagan era. And obviously this depends on your class status. Um, but then wanting to kind of push away from that, but they're finding the, finding the wrong ways to push away from it. The exactly. wrong ways to, they're lashing out at like, um, who can I blame for this ho-drum job that I find boring? And how do I fix it? Oh, I fix it by just like getting beat up and being a man. Right, exactly. Like the the only way is sort the only way to react to a to a civilized society that that conditions you to be civilized by virtue of your consumerism, then your 180 to that is to go to a primal violence that is yes, it is a rejection of that, but it's the same it's they're in the end they're two sides of the same coin that they both foster a kind of immaturity in the individual. For sure. Um, it's got a nice legacy. I mean, everyone hated it when it came out, even critics, and it didn't do well at the box office. But. No, I remember, and it was advertised so weird too. I saw the ad for it for the first time right before the Phantom Menace, because it was all 20th Century Fox, and it was a first. It's a weird film to advertise in front of a Star Wars film, and then like the advertising campaign was like mischief, mayhem, soap, and you're like, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was in that book. He talks about how they were marketing it as a movie about fight clubs and how cool and how neat this is. And he's like, that's not what the movie is. Yeah. So you're conditioning people to come and expect one thing and they get the other. But even still, I mean, I, that DVD set, the two disc, whatever thing was like, I had it and all of my friends had it. Yeah, I had, I was like the first DVD I bought. Yeah, it was like a treasured item. And it, I think he got like extra budget to do like that packaging and everything. He he found the DVD as he says, as a like way to finally market the movie for real, like yeah. the correct way. So it's a great DVD. Great. Yeah. set. Um, And then so I'm trying to remember what what comes next. Oh, Panic, Panic. Room. Panic Room, which is so much fun. Panic Room, another film that doesn't really get its due, I think. It's the only Fincher film that has never made the jump to Blu-ray. All the other ones have. Uh, Panic Room is still in a three... If you can find it, the three-disc DVD, I highly recommend it because it's packed with great behind-the-scenes uh, stuff. Originally, Nicole Kidman was supposed to star in the film, but then she had to drop out at the last minute, so they got Jodie Foster. Um, Panic Room's just fun. I mean, pa David Fincher, by his own admission, he's like, I just wanted to make a great date night movie. And he absolutely succeeded in that. It is just a straightforward. I think it also has one of Jared Leto's better performances. I think he's really entertaining in Panic Room. Um, but it is like, it's funny. It's like, I just want to make a great date night movie. Also, I'm going to need to build a house. <laughs> I need to build a house on a soundstage that I can pull apart to get certain shots. <laughs> See, I don't love Panic Room. You don't love Panic Room? Uh, no. I like it. This I, is over. I wish I loved it more. I know. Um, I don't know. I, I find it pretty enjoyable, but I find it pretty basic. Like it doesn't necessarily add a ton. And I find the location to get a bit monotonous and it's just so visually dark. Um, 
I don't know. I, and I need to revisit it. It's been a few years, um, but it's not one of my favorite ventures. I find it a little simple, I guess is the word. Although I think Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart are both great. And I, I agree. I think Jared Leto is a ton and, of fun. And like, I think Forrest Whitaker's good. Dwight yeah. Yoakam's really good. I think it works, man. I think that yeah. film is really good. So um, I had no idea. I was reading in that that Fincher interviews book. Apparently, it was just awful. Like making it was terrible. Oh, I'm sure uh, it was. Like, I mean, did, have you watched the the special features mm, on that mm, disc? Yeah. Like, I'm sure. Like, you can see that it's awful because so they're still working on film and visual effects haven't really gotten into where they need to be. So, for instance, there's a scene where uh, they're trying to get into the panic room from but from beneath it, which involves. Uh, Dwight Yoakam taking a sledgehammer and hitting a ceiling and the ceiling breaks. And then they, you know, Fincher is like, we have to do this shot 50 times, which means <laughs> yeah. fixing the ceiling 50 times. Like there's no VFX where they can just like, here, just hit this. And then we'll add in all the breaking yeah. and all the yeah. stuff afterwards. And I'm shooting it on digital so we can do this forever. No, it's on film and they have like, they're on schedule. Like I am not surprised that it was a, it was a hard experience. Um, yeah, apparently he even like when Nicole Kidman had to drop out, he was ready to walk away. He was like, listen, we can scrap it. Like, we don't have to make this movie. They had shot for a number of weeks already because um, he was like, we would have to shut down and it's going to take like cost you X amount of money to keep like keep going. And they wanted to keep going. So they got Jodie Foster, um, who I think ended up being pregnant. So then he had to use a stunt double for a lot of her stuff. Um, but he says, like, in hindsight, so I guess the actors were miserable. And he says his problem was that he had already made the movie by the time he got to set. And I'd heard this that because uh, it had, um, I think Darius Kanji was the original cinematographer. And he showed up and like Fincher had prevised every single shot because he had built a miniature model of the house and was designing every single shot just with a little camera. Um, and so the original cinematographer was like, I, there's no reason for me to be here, so I'm going to quit. Uh, and so he did. Um, let me make sure I got that right. Uh, yeah, it was Darius Kanji. And uh, but Fincher says like he had made the movie in his head so perfectly that by the time he got to set, he was bored. Um, and he like publicly, this was like an interview maybe like a few months or a year after um, he like apologized to Forrest Whitaker or to Jodie Foster. He said Jodie Foster ended up having to direct Kristen Stewart a lot because they were in that room. Um, and so he was having to use the call. And like he said, you know, he had the bright idea of making all the screens like actually live. So that mean, meant he had to direct all of the action downstairs and upstairs at the same time and like make sure everything matched up. Um, so I think he was just miserable. And a recurring theme in this book that I read, which I had never really heard him talk about before, but like it's a frequent refrain when he's talking about his films. Is that it like he loves, loves, loves development and production and he hates everything after because it never lives up to what he wanted to do and so like he loves developing and coming up with like what what are all the possibilities and then he says he gets super frustrated on set because it never matches with what he wants which probably goes a little hand in hand with why he does so many takes and he's looking for perfection and he's trying to get something to line up to so that, like you know his impossible standards but i found that fascinating that is interesting yeah um and then so I feel like I'm missing one in the filmography. Between is there one before Zodiac? No, there's uh, a five. Yeah. yeah, he took a break. Uh, I think he was like developing a number of things that didn't happen. Like he was going to do Mission Impossible Three. Yeah, torso. Yeah, very was close in there. to making that. Mm -hmm. Um, but then Zodiac and Ben Button happened back to back. Yes. And for Zodiac, he got the script. He said, "This is great. 
uh, from James Vanderbilt and then said, I want to interview everyone involved. So they spent literally a year going up and interviewing surviving victims, uh, you know, police officers, people who were actually there. And if nothing could match up, they would pull it out of the script. So. Right. No, Zodiac was a really, I mean, I think Zodiac is, is arg. I mean, I love Fight Club, but I would, to I'm very receptive to the argument that it's hard to say which is Fincher's best. And maybe we'll say that when we will give our opinion yeah. at the end of the show, Let's but it's it. up there, man. Zodiac is, is impressive because it's not just sort of the, sort of the spin on the serial killer story. It, in some ways it feels more like a journalism story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that goes back to sort of, you know, his father, uh, Jack Fincher was a journalist and the hero of the film in a way, I mean, it's hard. To, I don't know if you would qualify Graysmith as necessarily a hero, but he's like a political cartoonist, like, but he's about solving the puzzle and, and trying to get the story and even trying to get the story beyond what he can prove, you yeah. know, like he under, eventually reaches the point, like, I know this is not enough to hold up in a court of law, but I need to know how the story completes. I need to know how it finishes. And this is one of those instances where I think the movie is far better than the book. I tried reading Zodiac Unmasked um, and it, it was, he, he's not a writer. Gray Smith is, his writing is rough. Um, the movie does a much, does a really good job of, of synthesizing his work and making it sort of flow in a better direction and, and sort of reach uh, a kind of catharsis, even as the whole film is about that, catharsis of solving the case being frustrated uh, and how that eats away at these people. Uh, it was really interesting. And that was actually, that was one of the early junkets I did in my career. And it was cool because while we didn't get to really interview any of like, like the, the biggest star was Ruffalo that they had available for us. They did let us talk with like cops who had worked the case, which was, oh, and, cool. and like some of them were like, yeah, I disagree with this movie. I don't think it's this. I don't think it's Robert Lee Allen at all. You know, like we think it's our guy and, and, you know, and this dude, you know, I thought I thought that was really cool to be like, yeah, this movie is not saying it's the definitive answer of what happened. Um, well, it's a film about obsession. Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's it's not that it doesn't matter who the Zodiac killer is. It I think it matters who Robert thinks it is, who Graysmith thinks it is. Right. Um, but it's about how obsession can essentially ruin your life. I mean, you look at. Tashi and at a certain point he's like listen like that case I spent years of my life uh you know it ruined my personal life I got out even when Graysmith is trying to get Anthony Edwards's character back in and he's like no he wanted out like he's done he stepped away and Graysmith is the one who like doggedly pursues it and it kills him I mean it, it kills his personal life um it just kind of ruins him but uh I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that obsession is all bad, but it kind of the cost of obsession and the right, cost yeah, of that there, yeah, that it's not just, you know, oh, if you work really hard and put all the pieces together, everything will work out. It's like at yeah. the end of the day, it's it's almost a fear, it's almost a pyrrhic victory, where yeah. you know he technically solves it, but you know at what cost? Well, I'm always haunted by Robert Downey Jr.'s final scene, where you're just like, good God. Like yeah. this guy, this guy is just ruined. In, yeah. Just in a terrible position. Yeah. Uh, he's great in that film. I really want to hear him talk now openly about working with him. Cause Fincher. he hated it. Cause well, and knowing how Downey Jr. Works, which is that he never wants to do the same thing twice and wants to move on and like wants to improvise and change the script. And Fincher's like, no, I want you to do exactly that. 17 so, times. Sometimes you get to make Zodiac and sometimes you get to make Doolittle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, proof is in the pudding there. <laughs> I think it's kind of 
uh, I think it's kind of there. Um, but yeah, I, I think Zodiac is one of his best films. Um, also just visually stunning. If you watch the making up documentary, mm-hmm. there's so many subtle visual effects in that film that I think, uh, you know, work really well. They're also, you know, as dark as that movie is, there's some really good jokes in yes. in Zodiac. There are some really good jokes. Um, when 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 Robert Downey Jr. is like, me thinks my me thinks our friend is a tad fuckered in the head, <laughs> or it's like, how's the coffee today? And the guy just points at the sign and says, coffee, delicious as hell. <laughs> yeah. Or he asked Gray Smith if he smokes, and he said once in high school. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like like that's the thing. Like Fincher films, like he gets. You know, there are times where it's like his films are very dark and cold and like sometimes that's the case. But there are other times where they're really funny and lively and like have kind of a biting sense of humor. There's not a single one of his films that's humorless. Even Seven, I think, has its dark humor um, buried within. With the, I would say there is one film of his that's humorless. OK, <laughs> we'll get there. OK, let's get there now. It's Curious Case of Benjamin. Button. <laughs> yeah. That's a humorless uh, film. I'm trying to think. I think there's some funny scenes with Taraji B. Henson a little bit, maybe. A little bit. I don't know. Like, it's not a good... Like, I, I, I loved it the first time I saw it, and it's just, it's a film that's fallen apart. And I understand, like, why he wanted to make it. Like, his father had, ju- had died in 2003, and he was sort of trying to find a way to cope with it. And, like, Benjamin Button, like, people have been trying to make it for years. And, like, like the, the Criterion collection of, of Benjamin Button has a documentary on it about the making of that is longer than the film itself. And the film is two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. so, and that documentary is so good. And for the first half hour, no, like David Fincher doesn't show up. It's Kathleen Kennedy. It's Frank Marshall talking about like versions they were going to make with Steven Spielberg and Tom yeah. Cruise. It's fascinating. Yeah, about them trying to shepherd it through it. And then it's like, it wasn't really until the technology was there that they could, because they wanted to do it with just one actor and they knew that the makeup wouldn't be good enough. Um, and so like they, they needed the technology to be there, but ultimately I don't think the story is there. I feel like Eric Roth's screenplay, Eric Roth also wrote Forrest Gump and he wrote a very Gumpian sort of narrative that I don't think really pays off in the end. It doesn't really, it's never as sad as it needs to be. It, it, it's a film that sort of like goes for moments. So like you take, for instance, that sequence where we're being told about how Daisy broke her leg and lost her dance career. And in if you take it out of the film, it's very beautiful. Like it's like, you know, about the things you don't expect happening that ca- have a ripple effect and change your life forever. And it's actually, you know, it's very moving, but it's not, doesn't belong in this film because there's no way to have, for Benjamin to have this knowledge. Yeah. You know, like there's no way for him to know it. So it has to either be a third person omniscient or Benjamin knows everything. Like it just doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to, even though it wants to get to this point about life is about the things you don't expect. Um, and I also and that think that scene is one of my favorite scenes in the film, but I agree it like, it doesn't, it doesn't fit because the story is told. Well, is it told entirely from Benjamin's point of view? Cause there's it's a bit told, of Daisy. No, it's told from Daisy's point of view. That's yeah, yeah, the other yeah. weird thing is that it's all flashback. Yeah, it's yeah. what Daisy is telling to her daughter in the hospital. So why is Benjamin now narrating this part? Yeah. You know, it's weird. Um, and so there's that problem. And then I think I don't really ever buy the ending, which is like, I'm going to abandon you with our child now. You can't raise both of us. So he leaves, goes on adventures, has the time of his life, and then comes back 
when she's like met another guy who's helped raise their daughter and he's like, okay, let's have sex. <laughs> like, what? what is going on? Like, I don't think Benjamin ever really learns. And I think that love story kind of falls apart ever at the end. Yeah. That's one. I, I always, I'm, Whenever I think about revisiting it, I usually put that documentary on again <laughs> or I watched it with the commentary. I think, I think, the last the time make, I I think in, in a way it is kind of pure Fincher because the making of is more interesting than the film itself. Yeah, it's very fascinating. I think it's a really beautiful looking film. And I think they, the uh, technology is groundbreaking. Yeah, the, the craftsmanship is I'm not surprised it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars like that yeah. doesn't surprise me because, you know, it's the score is great. The cinematography is great. The performance is great, but it, I think it's less than the sum of its parts. I remember when it came out, AMC theaters would do that. Like, you know, marathoning all the best picture nominees. And this is when there were five, um, or maybe, yeah, this is when there still, still five. Uh, right. And the we got there. Before. Yeah. Two years. I'm sorry. Two years before two or three years. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because we went because we hadn't seen The Reader or Milk. So it started off with The Reader, which was a hell of a movie to watch at like 8 a.m. <laughs> and then <laughs> to watch any time of day. Yeah. And then we watched Milk, uh, which is fine. And then the next movie up was Ben Button. And we watched like half an hour of it. We had already seen it. And we're like, let's go. <laughs> like, I don't think I can watch this whole movie again. It's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's just it doesn't it doesn't. You know, it's weird to sort of, see, you know, it's funny. Um. There's a there's a fun clip that you and I enjoy, which is that David Fincher's like, I believe people are perverts, <laughs> you know, and it's from that making of documentary. And yet Benjamin Button is a very straightforward film. It doesn't really yeah. have a lot of Fincher's personality in it. It doesn't have that spark or that bite. It feels very prestige, yeah. but it doesn't feel like him. It's kind of his most saccharine um, and not to a fault. It's not like he's like dripping the tears from you. It's just so subdued. It it feels a little lifeless. Yeah. No, it just, it feels too, it feels polished within an inch of its life. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as you said, filled with like the, the Elias Cody stuff with the uh, clock and stuff. It's like, yeah. what the, why is that? Why are we talking about this? Yeah. Because <laughs> at the beginning, yeah, you're like, the oh, clock's this is running long. backwards and Benjamin's yeah. aging backwards. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't think it works. Yeah. Um, I think it's but, all right. I don't hate it. I don't, I don't, it's not my least favorite of his, but it's, yeah. I, I, it's not, it's one I definitely no desire to ever revisit. Um, I do think his, thankfully he bounces back in a big way with his next film, which is social network. Yeah. We won't go too long on this because we actually did do a social network episode, uh, earlier this year, you all voted and we talked about it just as a social network is just awesome. <laughs> it's just so freaking good. And the, you know, what's funny is like, you see these films that are made about figures who are still very active in their lives and that can really go one of two ways and i really it's interesting for me the problem the biggest problem with the social network these days is that it's still as biting as it is towards mark zuckerberg and as much as it accurately knows who he is it could be harder on him and it's like in 2010 it was about the right approximation it didn't know that over the next 10 years mark zuckerberg would be even worse you know yeah well, so, and, and again, in that book that I read, there are two very long interviews with David Fincher. One of them is by Mark Harris about the social network. And one of them is very, it doesn't really mention Sorkin that much, but Fincher is very empathetic towards Mark Zuckerberg and is talking about how he says, you know, I've been in that position where people say, isn't that cute that like you think you know, like when you grow up, we'll 
respect you. Um, but kind of talking about how Mark was like ahead of the curve and like he really, it sounds like he really admires Mark Zuckerberg. And at the end of that interview, the author talks about, you know, is is that why both your and Aaron Sorkin's views on this film can be different? Because Sorkin's whole thing was Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook because a girl was mean to him. And Fincher's whole thing was Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook because he was the smartest person in the room and no one respected him and he wanted to show off. Uh, and those two ideas, I think, are kind of competing at the center of the social network. I think the like shittiness of Mark Zuckerberg is like kind of I think that is definitely true. And the movie definitely shows that. And I think that has kind of overshadowed a bit. But I do think those two competing ideas that were kind of the nexus of it, because at the time, again, like 2010, like people were like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg's a little weird and he's kind of robotic. But no one was like, uh, you know, he's a garbage human. <laughs> no, he wasn't that. And to the point where people are like a Facebook movie, because in yeah. 2010, Facebook is only six years old. Yeah, it, ex it came into existence basically in 2004, 2005. Um, and. It, it's it's a relatively new technology and people are like, this seems like it's going to be dated immediately. And really it's not because it's not about Facebook. It's about, yeah. <laughs> there's a reason it's called the social network. And it's basically this great Citizen Kane-esque story about this one, about these guys who seeking to find a club, lose all bonds of fellowship. They yeah. lose their entire friendship over this business. Like it's a tragic story. Yeah. It has. And that's what I love about it is it's just like you can view it on so many different levels and it works on all of those levels. Like even viewing it now, it still works as Mark Zuckerberg is an asshole. It, yes, it's a little bit more sympathetic towards him, but it's still like yeah, it's still it's got it. It's not, it's not like um, the fifth estate where you're just like, <laughs> oh, yikes, yikes. <laughs> uh -oh. I would not make this story about Julian Assange. Yeah. I did. Fincher did say in one of those interviews that he just absolutely like he was adamant that they were not going to go the Disney casting route with the social network. And they ended up casting a ton of Disney people. And he was like, they were great. And a uh, person asked him, like, what was it like to work with a bunch of young actors? And he was like, it was fucking incredible. And you can imagine, like, you know, it was absolutely. about like. It was Army Ham, one of Army Hammer's first films, uh, you know, one of Andrew Garfield's first films. And when Fincher's like, I want 99 takes, they're like, hell yeah, let's do it. Well, not just like they're young and they're energetic, but like they don't know any better. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, like Jake Gyllenhaal has been in the business for a while and he is like on that social network documentary. You can see that he is not happy. <laughs> the Zodiac and one, you mean? On the Zodiac, I'm sorry, on the Zodiac one. Yeah, he's not happy. Uh, and he's been on the records like, I was not happy. <laughs> and, yeah. But like, Jesse Eisenberg is like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this 99 times. Yeah, sounds fun. Let's do it. And, and they I, got great performances out of it. Yeah, and I also think it's just a really great match of material for Fincher. Because again, Fincher was this precocious child. He's clearly, you know, genius IQ, but also very affable and charming. And I think there's something that he could connect with to Zuckerberg but not fully connect with because he could also see, you know, when Zuckerberg is on 60 minutes, he sounds like a robot. So like, it's this guy who I like, he, he really understood the irony that this guy who could not connect to people in real life built this thing that made everyone around the world able to connect with one another. And yet they connected with one each other on Zuckerberg's terms. It's a yes. false create. It's a false thing of connection. And that's yeah. to me, what makes the ending so bitter is that he's re not just reaching out to his ex, but he's doing it on his platform in the false terms that only he can accept. Yeah. <laughs> it's so sad. It is so fucking sad. <laughs> 
It is. Um, yeah. The but worst great... thing to come out of social network was when Aaron Sorkin won the Oscar and apologized to Mark Zuckerberg for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, in 2010, it was like in the no, whole... 2010. Yeah. But he's like, oh, you're not as bad a guy. No, he's he is a bad guy. <laughs> well, there was an entire narrative around. And I think also, like, I understand because like Fincher and Sorkin are grown ass men. And like, this is a, you know, a kid, essentially. Um, you lose. So I think... I, let me say you lose the distinction of kid when you make your first billion. <laughs> Kids don't have a billion. Richie Rich is not real. When you make a billion dollars, you become a grown ass man. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But that was a very like strong narrative around the film was like, it's being mean to this guy who's only like 20 something years old. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, so then his next film is the girl with the dragon tattoo. And you know, I really, you know, I understand what Fincher was going for. Like, so he's coming off Social Network, which is a is a box office smash. Um, it's beloved by critics. People thought it was going to win Best Picture, and then kind of King Speech kind of swooped in, and now Tom Hooper has an Oscar. So that's a <laughs> for, the director of Cats has an Oscar, but yeah. David Fincher does not. David Fincher zero. Um, <laughs> but sort of the I the way. Watching the the uh, Dragon Tattoo documentary, the way it was pitched it to Fincher by Sony was like, would you like to make an R-rated franchise? Like movies for adults, but it's going to be a franchise. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. But I also want control over the marketing and I want, you know, I want to make it this way. And I just, I've never been that enamored with Dragon Tattoo as a story. I feel like it's well-intentioned it's trying to be a story about sexual assault and and sort of the evil that men do but there are elements of it that feel like it, it's based off of the steve larson novel of the same name and i feel like larson who had passed away by the time the movie came out um he has this sort of mentality it's like, well, if someone tries to sexually assault you, you sexually assault them right back. And it's like, well, that's not, you know, like, so like when, when, when Elizabeth is, is sexually assaulted, like she sexually assaults her rapist and it sort of frames her almost as like a superhero. And it's weird to sort of have it framed that way. And I know some people disagree with that reading. It's just the film has always kind of never quite hit its mark in the way that it's trying to, in the way that its characterizations work. Um, and it's also just a very oddly structured film. Uh, the fact that, you know, your two main characters don't meet until halfway through the film. Yeah. Um, it just, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. My problem with Dragon Tattoo is that it feels, it's just too unwieldy for me. Um, <laughs> and I like elements of, of it a lot. I think Rudy Mars is fantastic. I really like Daniel Craig's performance and I really like them together once they finally get together. When they As you said, get together. The, yeah, it's about an hour. It's 45 minutes or an hour before they get together. And even like, even then the plot hasn't really kicked in in terms of finding the serial killer. And I understand like Fincher didn't want to make a movie about a serial killer, but it still ends in a chase to catch a serial killer. Um, I mean, that's where the story ends. And so I think it's a little, I think the focus is just a little off in terms of it, it wanting to be about Lizbeth, like a story about the girl with the dragon tattoo and all of this stuff is happening around her. I think it, it doesn't necessarily balance that well because then it like, it starts kind of like that, but then you're switching all these scenes with Mikhail who, who is like a disgraced journalist. And you're like, what, what does this have to do with that other thing? And then they team up to hunt a serial killer. Um, it just kind of goes in a lot of different directions. Um, but craft wise, like I, I love Jeff Cronenberg's cinem cinematography on that film. Um, and I love kind of the icy aesthetic 
of it. Um, Enter at Natic is store score. I like a lot, but uh, I don't know. It's one I revisit more than more often than I revisit like panic room or something. So, so yeah, on the other way, like panic room to me, I can pop on and have a good time with, but um, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like the film dragon tattoo did not perform anywhere near what Sony wanted it to, which is no. why there was not a sequel, but it's so funny to me. Cause like I'll have control over the marketing and the marketing is the feel bad movie of Christmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And even then, like it still made uh, like it grossed two hundred thirty two million dollars. Like that's not terrible, but it's not good when your metric is like we want five hundred million. We want five. If this is if this is going to be a franchise. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, I I mean, I was kind of curious to see where uh, Fincher would take that story, because I think we saw the really bad version. And I haven't seen the Swedish films, but the um, the girl in the spider's web. Yeah. Is like that's the superhero version of it. And it's Mm. so bland and boring. Did you ever see it? They sent me a copy. I never watched it. I never asked for the copy. They just sent it to me, showed up at my house. I was like, I don't really want to watch this. <laughs> it's just a dark and gritty superhero movie. And it's just like, uh, like, it's just a really basic thriller. Mm. Uh, it's really boring. And it made me appreciate Venture's Dragon Tattoo. Even That's more. fair. That's fair. Um, and then so his next film. Well, no. And then so he he does he, he does that. And then he does House of Cards. Um, changes how we watch television and changes how we watch television, him and Netflix. I mean, so before house of cards was not the first Netflix drama. That was Lily hammer. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's by the way, at trivia night, you'll want to keep that in your back yeah. pocket. Lily um, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, I'm sorry. House of cards is based off a British series. um, stars Kevin Spacey and, and Robin Wright and it's ruthless sort of politics. Uh, and Fincher directs the first two episodes, but it's really more Bo Willimon's show. Um, but Fincher helps kind of set the tone for it and kind of, you know, how, how television is done by releasing all the episodes at once. And it was a very bingeable show. That's the other thing you have to remember. It's not just that they released all the episodes, it's that people wanted to watch all the episodes. Um, and I think that does speak to the strength of that first season of House of Cards um, and what they were doing. Um, but it's also a show I'd never have never really felt a need to return to. No, and I was kind of I mean, as a lot of people were, I was kind of obsessed with it when it first came out. Yeah, like it, yeah. I ate that first season up um, and then watched the second season as well. But Fincher wasn't super involved in it um, kind of beyond that first season. He was looking at cuts of episodes and stuff of that first season. But I mean, I found Kevin Spacey compelling. I found Robin Wright's character compelling. Um, but at a certain point, I don't know, it's just kind of like, yeah, I get it. Well, and also Bad I think people in politics. Well, and I also feel like it's this kind of it's a show that kind of aged out of its own relevancy. Yeah. Um, because as we moved, I mean, it was very much an Obama era show in the sense that like if Obama represents hope and competency, it's like, what if we made evil West wing, you know? And like, yeah. that's kind of what house of cards is in those opening seasons. Um, but by the time you're sort of like making way to the Trump era and sort of seeing all the divisions in the politics, the show that really becomes about our political moment is not house of cards, but veep. Um, and just a, just a cascade of, of callous, incompetent people. Yeah. Um, that sort. And I think Veep has, has, has kind of won out there. It's aged much better. Um, not only because House of Cards was like filming and then Kevin Spacey got fired and they had to like write him out of the show as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. On the, another point of going for Veep is that Julia Louis-Dreyfus has not sexually been accused of sexual assault. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, that's fair. <laughs> But yeah, House of Cards, I mean, I, you know, 
that first season, I think I still think is pretty good. I think Liz Shannon Miller, um, our TV editor, wrote a really great essay about it and how it did change television yeah. um, and change the way we watch things. And, you know, uh, Netflix owes Venture a great debt because if that first show or if that first big blockbuster show had been a bust, it may have taken them a little while longer to right. get people on board with their whole thing. No, I think definitely that pairing of, of you know, at the time, Wright, Spacey, and, and Fincher was like, this is prestige television. It's going to be like at a, you know, it's going to look like cinema. It's going to be really compelling. And I mean, that was just, it was the right mix at the time. Yeah. Um, so, and then, so his next film is Gone Girl, which is, I think, as vicious as anything he has ever done. And I think it's great. But I love it, Gone Girl. Gone Girl is really good, but it is from the get-go, just a nasty... I mean, the book is is great, too, but the book is also just a very much a nasty piece of work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and it's interesting because it sort of walks this razor's edge of... Um, it's a story about a marriage. And, like, on the one hand, we can all relate to that. But on the other hand, it's also a satire. It's sort of like, if this woman were to exist, this sort of devil woman who ruins the lives of men, and, like, this is what she would look like, and she's kind of beyond like i think what jillian flynn's point is is that like amy dunn is not a realistic person like if she were she'd be a super villain that's yeah. what she would look like but like the fact that they're both both flynn who wrote the screenplay based on her book and then fincher are able to ground it into a marriage story makes it just like it gets under your skin it it, it, it stops it from just being escapist entertainment because by the end you're like you're you're kind of forced to look at your own relationships and it's like yeah. what kind <laughs> what have we done to each other what will well, we I do, yeah i think it's very much about those masks that you wear in courtship you're presenting the best version of yourself right and then you're accepting that other person as the best version of themselves. Um, and then, you know, some relationships, you get married, those masks start to fade a little bit, and you have to negotiate, you know, is this still someone I'm compatible with? Can we make compromises? Are we, you know, too far apart? Um, and even just like the, uh, the self-doubt, like, you know, are you willing to accept that that is not who you are? That person you present, you know, that good guy Nick Dunn, are you willing to accept that you're not always a good guy? That you know you are kind of a shithead sometimes. Yeah, um, no, exactly. Can or you are you in denial the... that that's actually me? Yeah, can you accept a relationship for what it is rather than the idealized version? Yeah. Especially as the media and oh, does the media come in and under fire and <laughs> pushes those idealized notions? But by yeah. the way, in a in a just world, Missy Pyle gets a gets an Oscar nomination for just skewering the hell out of Nancy Grace. <laughs> One of Fincher's best qualities is his casting capabilities, and not taking anything away from his casting directors, um, who I know he works very closely with, but like his casting is always really on point but especially in gone girl every single person like the brilliance of casting ben affleck in that role someone who like because audi he knows he's not making movies in a vacuum he knows audiences are bringing their baggage attached to ben affleck with them to go and see that movie and then because the whole idea of nick done is that he people are making assumptions based on his you know charming smile and his demeanor while his wife is missing and everything uh i think that's brilliant i think rosamund pike is so good in it but also like kim dickens and patrick fugit as the cops are so like kim dickens is brilliant in that tyler movie. perry tyler of perry all people. Is so good. <laughs> he's so good carrie coon 
uh, and that movie is just so funny. Like it's yeah. really, it's funny. really funny. It has a yeah. ton of laugh out loud moments, uh, all throughout it. Um, yeah, Tyler Perry is so good in that movie. Yeah. I rewatched it recently, and it's just like it's a very fun movie to watch. Like as nasty as it is, it's a super enjoyable, really wonderful date movie. And I that's one of my favorite theatrical experiences was going to a packed theater uh, with my girlfriend at the time, uh, and like just seeing a bunch of other couples like experiencing this together. Yeah, it was a tough one. It, it's a good one. And then he kind of steps away from movies again. I mean, he was trying to get Twenty Thousand Leagues. Yeah. Um, off the ground. Uh, the, the, again, Fincher is always sort of flirting with various projects, but the thing that gets gets done is Mindhunter. Well, um, and to to pause there for a second, mm-hmm. and it goes back to Alien Three, complete and total obstinance. Like after Alien Three, he made the conscious decision, and our own Vanny Mancuso wrote a really great essay about this. But like, he will tell the studio what he needs to make the movie. If the studio will not come to that budget level or whatever, he will walk away. <laughs> Right. Like he he says, I don't have to make this movie. And so, you know, that's why he walked away from Steve Jobs. They wouldn't give him control over marketing and they wouldn't give him the budget that he said he needed to make that movie. So that's why a bunch of these projects fall apart. It's not uh, that he has bad luck, but that he's like, no, no, no. He's, it's a conscious decision. Yeah. yeah. He says, this is how much this costs. And either yeah. you're going to meet me there or I don't have to make this <laughs> like go with God, but I will go and do something else. Yeah. And I mean, I think sometimes that's a bummer. Like I, as, as much as I enjoy Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs, uh, always in the back of my mind, I'll be like, what if Fincher had made this? Yeah. yeah, Um, Especially with, I think Christian Bale, who would have been a really interesting choice for, for Steve Jobs. I think Fassbender is really great in that though. He is like, that's the thing. Like I don't dislike the, the Boyle version. I just, what if, um, So then, so he eventually goes back to Netflix and they make mine two seasons of Mindhunter. And although there's a showrunner credited and although there are different directors in the first season credited, it's Fincher. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've, I've talked to people and eh, David Fincher made the entire first season of Mindhunter. Yeah. And had a very heavy hand in season two as well. Yeah. And and by his own admission, like in these interviews leading up to Manx, as mm-hmm. like he was exhausted by the end of season two because he was essentially the day to day showrunner. He was all hands on deck living in Pittsburgh nine to ten months at a time to make each season of the show. And yeah. I love the show. It is Zodiac, the TV series. Yes. But I also it's... understand Fincher's frustration of like. I've only made what, like nine, 10 movies and I want to make more movies. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's when you're asking one person to direct 10 episodes a season, it's a huge time. And you're, and you're directing in like Pittsburgh or Atlanta, you know, like that's not your home. Like it's just draining, you know, like at some level, if you're going to make a long, like if you're going to do anything beyond a limited series or like a anthology series, you have to delegate and Fincher's just not going to delegate in that way. It's just, he's too much of a perfectionist. It sounds like, especially with Carl Franklin in season two, I think he let other people really take yeah. the rank, but he was really heavily involved in the editing and, and any reshoots that needed to be done, which there, I know there were a lot of reshoots on both seasons of Mindhunter, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of finesse things and stuff. Um, but man, I love that show. I'd love for it to come back but I don't know if I'd love for it to come back at the expense of like a new Fincher movie. Yeah. I kind of, in a weird way, I almost kind of wish that there would be some kind of compromise, like a series of like Mindhunter TV movies. Like if we could just deal, like again, if the show is just going to be, I mean, the show as it was laid out was like, we're leading up to the, to the capture of the BTK killer. Like if, and if that's what you're doing, like, couldn't you just do like little two hour movies focused on little cases 
sort of as kind of almost like a franchise leading up yeah. to to where you're going anyway. Because yeah. I like those actors as those characters, but you know, I mean, it's just one of those things that happens. It's no one's fault. Um, it's just, and I'm glad we got at least two great seasons out of it. Yeah, same here. Um, all right. Well, that's we we've been talking for over an hour just about the path, the work of David Fincher, and now we finally have arrived at his latest film, Mank. Mank. Uh, Mank, uh, which is kind of uh, was already, I think, had a bit of an uphill battle because I think the word on it was, in terms of what it was about, was misleading. Um, there was the thought of like, oh, it's about the making of Citizen Kane or the battle over who made Citizen Kane. And it's like, who's going to play Orson Welles, the star and director and co-writer of Citizen Kane? And then you watch Mank and Orson Welles is barely in it. <laughs> and it's like, no, this is not real. Like, it's it's kind of about Citizen Kane. It's about the lead up but really it's more about media manipulation and politics and like a guy trying to atone for his sins through his art and realizing that as a screenwriter, he can only do so much. Um, so, you know, and, and the thing about Mank is that I feel like it's a film I should love more than I do. I, yeah. It's a film I respect, like some people are really sour on Mank. Yeah. Um, and you can see from the Netflix statistics that a lot of people didn't watch Mank at all. Um, <laughs> But uh, I feel like it's a film I, I wish I had liked more than I did. It just left me a little cold. At the end of the day, I didn't really care about any of the characters. As I mean, I thought they were interesting, and I like learning about Hollywood history. But it only I only like it insofar as much as that I'm a big Citizen Kane fan. I'm a big David Fincher fan. I think the film is gorgeously shot. I mean, the craftsmanship is impeccable. Yeah. Um, I, it's a it's a it's a film I enjoyed the the experience of watching it, but I didn't it didn't stick with me the way that that other Fincher films have. Yeah, uh, I I agree. I think the craftsmanship is absolutely stunning. I think the cinematography is terrific. It's and you have an interview with the cinematographer on Collider right now. You can read it on Collider right now. Uh, one interesting tidbit he told me the final dinner party scene because I asked him about that because I know Fincher does a billion takes and there's so much coverage. Uh, I was like, what was it like shooting that? And like, you know, how much coverage did you need on Gary Oldman? He said Gary Oldman performed that every single time. So if they were doing the coverage of Amanda Seyfried or one of the extras, Gary was performing the entire thing. But also specifically because they had to time, like he needed to say this when he was in this position or when this. So they had to do the whole thing every single time. Um, but it's the climax of the film. Like you it have is. to have it. It's a huge, yeah. And I don't know. I really like Mink. Uh, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it. I liked it even better the second time I saw it. I, there's something there, though, that like is keeping me from loving, like falling in love with it. Um, I do think it is a little narratively confusing. Like I was trying to watch it with my fiance and she was like, I don't know what's going on. And she's pretty smart. She was like, I think I need to watch Citizen Kane first. Like, I don't remember. Like, she didn't know that William Randolph Hearst was the basis for Charles Foster Kane. So I do think especially for just like casual like moviegoers, this is going to really not connect. <laughs> yeah, this is basically asking someone to come into an advanced film studies class because you have to like not just it's not just like, oh, you need to have seen Citizen Kane. You have to know how the whole how the Hollywood system worked. Yeah. Like how like old the old Hollywood studio, like who is Louis B. Mayer? Who is Irving Thalberg? Why are they important? Why yeah. is Mank have a team of writers? What are they doing? And even yeah. there, like Mank gets some details wrong. Like they're like Universal makes monster movies. Like, well, they didn't in 1931 when the scene yeah. is set. You know, <laughs> like it's 
but even that, like, you kind of have to understand the rhythms of what this is doing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as uh, an experience watching it, as someone who is a cinephile, as someone who is, you know, pretty steeped in knowledge in, in terms of Citizen Kane and that, like, I just had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed watching it. I think it's got a lot of great zingers. I do think it's still a little bit narratively jumbled. Like, I don't think it all fully connects in the way that the movie is hoping it will. Like, even the climax of the film, like, it's really arresting, but it didn't like take my breath away in the in the way that I felt like the film was hoping it would or um, like wanting you to feel. Um, and even like ultimately, like what the movie's about, I think is a little bit muddled because like, it is, is. It, like, is it about I mean, my read on it and, and the thing that I connect connected most strongly with was Mank, this guy who's kind of hobnobbing and wrote a bunch of scripts without his name on it uh, and just kind of had fun, was a drunk is kind of having a crisis of conscience throughout the 1930s and kind of seeing um, that actions have consequences and like what things are happening. And so when Orson Welles removes every distraction from him, puts him in a place where he can do the best writing and possibly do, he shoots his shot. Like he, he is like, "Eh, I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to do something special here. Um, but even then, like, it's not even like you're kind of like, what does the gubernatorial election have to do with? Well, and, see, and that's the thing. It feels like Mank is sort of about two different ideas. Yeah. One is that it's very much a movie about now where we're yeah. talking about media manipulation to political ends to benefit the powerful. Yeah. And so, you know, essentially William Randolph Hearst is the Rupert Murdoch of his time. And he's using the studio system to 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 fight Upton Sinclair because it's bad for his bottom line. And Mank sort of sees that and says, I have been complicit in this machine that I don't want to be a part of. And someone I have the power to sort of use cinema against William Randolph Hearst rather than Hearst using cinema to his own ends. The problem is, is that then you, on the other hand of what you have is you have a movie about what does a a screenwriter do? And I think to try to be like, this is what politics is and this is what movie making is, those don't really go hand in hand as well as Mank would like. Um, And that's where the film kind of becomes disjointed. So I feel like there is a story to be told about like, you know, Fincher has said in uh, in an interview, like, you know, this, and even, even in the film, Mank says like, you know, I gave him a, 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 a watertight narrative and a destination. What he does with it is up to him. Like there's an acknowledgement that like screenwriting is not the end all be all, that it's part of the process. And that Fincher by his own admission is that screenwriting is a process. He described himself like, like as a circus wrangler, you know, like it's kind of a miracle that any film turns out, you know, as, as that, that would any film, it's a miracle that any film gets made. And then it's a miracle that any film turns out good. Mm-hmm. And that is its own thing separate from how political actors manipulate the media. Yeah. <laughs> and so those, and I don't think make ever really reconciles them. Yeah. Cause it's like how, how directly did that whole gubernatorial thing inspire Mank to go after Hearst, you know, like it doesn't super duper outline that. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of like basically Mank doesn't care about anything. And then he sees Hearst and he's content to sort of be a, a, a Hearst dinner party guest and be a raconteur and be sort of the organ grinders monkey, yeah. you know, but when he sees how small he is, 
compared to Hurst. And when he sees what Hurst can do, he feels like he has to counterpunch. Because we were told that Mank has a conscience. Like he yeah. was trying to get Jews out of Europe. And he sees that there's like political consequences, that there are bigger things happening in the world. Um, again, I just don't think the the narrative gets to where it needs to be. How do you feel about the casting? Uh, I think the ca- okay. Let me back up. Uh, I think Gary Oldman's good as Mank. I don't. I don't. I mean, the fact that Mank was forty three and, and Oldman sixty one, but Mank drank a lot, and that shit will age you. So <laughs> yeah, I've I seen pictures. I've seen pictures of people at that time who were in their forties, and it's like, oh, they look sixty. Yeah. So. No. Exactly. Like that doesn't bother me. Um, the, the, the part that I don't really get, and like some people are kind of going gaga for Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies. I think she's fine. <laughs> I don't, it, her performance has not stuck with me the way that, that other performances have this year. Um, and I kind of feel that way mostly across the board, like these performances. And again, I think that's probably why Mank left me a little cold is that these performances don't have the sort of sharpness like the people speak in banter yeah but there's not a lot of personality behind those words so like i can't really tell you that like i can tell you that you know joseph mankowitz has a strange relationship with his i guess that it's cousin or brother i forget tom pelfrey plays his plays joe the brother and the brother is yeah gary is herman the other brother yeah and like that's fine like i just i don't know i didn't the relationships feel very formalized in a way that doesn't allow for a lot of connection. I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. Cause I feel, I, I liked Amanda Seyfried a lot in it. I, I, I think I probably liked her performance more than you did uh, and really sparked to it. But I think other than her, I kind of felt similar. Like I don't think Gary Oldman is bad, but I was really expecting like, you know, a lead performance as that, you know, in the titular role uh, of David Fincher's Mank. Uh, well, I mean, you're expecting, expecting something it to like, blow me away. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and we know what Gary Oldman can do when given yeah. the right. I mean, we've seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and and Darkest Hour. Like, we know what he can do, but here it's just not. And I don't even think it's. I, I don't even think they're bad performances or it's bad direction. I think it probably goes to the script, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I don't even think it's. Uh, it's not like there was a miscalculation made in terms of like how to tone the performance. I think it's just the script doesn't. I also, really... I also think the performances also have a, a, a steeper mountain to climb because the film is is made in such a way to look as it's of the period, but performances in the 1930s are very different than performances now. Yeah, um, people just act differently, um, and so it's a little confusing. It's not that like you know Cary Grant would give you a bad performance in the 1930s. But the performance that Cary Grant gives in 1930 is different than what we expect actors to do in 2020. You know, they're they're more. It's just a different relationship. You know, it's hard it's hard to explain it, but just acting is different. Well, I think a good example is when Marion and Mank are having that nighttime walk, and they walk by the monkey cages, and Marion yells at the monkeys, "Nobody but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph Hearst." She's being funny, but it doesn't like. She's being funny in a 1930s, 1940s way. So it's very sarcastic, but it doesn't entirely come off as like uh, my fiance was kind of like, what does that mean? Like, is she I don't understand. (laughs) Like, it's kind of hard to like she, you know, because she's just recited this negative press 
uh, mm-hmm. write-up of William Randolph Hearst. But she's being sarcastic. But sarcasm in the 30s and 40s was different than sarcasm now. Yeah, no, exactly. And banter is different. And the way that films, like, tonally that thing is different. Like, And and, and at the end of the day, like, Fincher can, like, he can, he can add sort of, you know, change over, you know, cigarette burns for the yeah. for real changeovers he That's can make it cool. yeah and he can make he can make the film look like it's from the era but i don't think he completely succeeded in making the film feel like it was from the era yeah yeah there's just something there i don't know it's i don't think it's a bad film i don't i think it's far no. from fincher's worst film um but i am curious to see what happens what he makes next because <laughs> he said something to the effect of you know depending on what happens with manx because uh, he signed a four-year contract with netflix he'll either go to netflix hat in hand and be like what do you need me to do or he'll go to netflix and be like all right it was a success what should we do next so it look, it's looking like he's going to be telling i say, like, what do you want me to do <laughs> yeah. and they're going to be like extraction two <laughs> <laughs> no uh, i would watch that I would watch it. So we've reached the end of this. Um, what uh, what would you say is your favorite venture? Social network. That's just it, it, also if you are if you've listened this far. First of all, thank you. Um, but you may have noticed in the past few days a couple of podcasts loaded that were from October, or maybe you didn't know they were from October. But one was our deep dive in Aaron Sorkin. Um, and like I am a Sorkin nut, so that marriage of venture and Sorkin is just like. Mwah. Yeah, perfect to me. <laughs> I would say that I think Social Network is his best film to date, uh, but my personal favorite remains Fight Club because I just connect with that. I also think Fight Club. I was sort of coming of age and sort of loving movies, and sort of like Fight Club just hit me at the right time, and so I just have sort of a special place in my heart for that one. You also run a Fight Club. So. I also run a Fight Club, you know, <laughs> and um, I'm not supposed to talk about it, but. I do run a fight club. All right. Um, with that, let's let's we haven't done recently watched in a while. What have you let's seen lately? It. Man, I'm obsessed with Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is uh, so good. Everyone talked about how much they love Ted Lasso. And so I finally watched Ted Lasso over the weekend. And I, I think it's my favorite show of the year. Like it just it, it, so it's it, essentially uh, Jason Sudeikis plays um, this American uh football like i think college football coach i guess college football football coach who gets recruited to come to england and coach um a not fledgling but a premier league football club uh soccer for all the americans out there um and you know it kind of has overtones of major league the new the owner is a woman whose husband just left her for a much younger woman um and so she wants to tank the league she wants to tank the team in order to get back at her husband um, which is why she's hired Ted Lasso. But Ted Lasso is this unendingly optimistic, joyful, warm, empathetic person um, who just like has pun after pun. The puns in the show are incredible. Uh, I love them so much. It makes me laugh really hard. Um, but his whole thing is, is uh, making the players better men versus winning. And I don't know, for me, what I really connected to is this, it's this really well crafted story of non-toxic masculinity and competition um and very healthy masculinity and friendships between men in a really earnest and endearing way that uh, you know we haven't seen a ton before i think it just hits a sweet spot but also just has such great characters juno temple is fantastic in the show um all of the actors in the show i think are really terrific and sudeikis i think gives a really interesting performance that is super funny and just when you think it's gonna be like one note and like oh this is getting a little tiresome uh it kind of flips the tables and you get to see a different side of him that i think really um 
colors that character and, and makes him feel more complex. So I'm obsessed with Ted Lasso, and I would highly suggest using the free trial from Apple TV over Christmas to watch Ted Lasso. Yeah, Ted Lasso is great. We're halfway through it, and uh, I've loved every episode. It's so good. It's so funny, too. Like yeah. the delivery of the, the jokes and the puns is just absolutely perfect. Yeah, no, it's really good. Um, for me, I just, I, this weekend I wanted to watch something kind of familiar and, uh, I hadn't watched in a while, uh, was walk hard, the Dewey Cox story. And I just, it's a, it, you know, it's funny. The, the film, I think some of the best, the best comedies of this, of this century so far. And it's, it's amusing to me that they've been like some of the, like they've been kind of flops, like pop heart, pop star was a flop and walk hard was a flop. And it's amazing that walk hard was a flop. Because yeah. Judd Apatow co-wrote the script, and this is Judd Apatow coming off 40-Year-Old Virgin and uh, Knocked Up. This is 2007. Yeah. And it was like, so Judd Apatow was like a name that could get people in. And like, people knew who John C. Riley was. They had seen Talladega Nights. Like, they, you know, it's, and for whatever reason, that film did not connect with people, and people didn't see it, but it has found life eventually. And I think it, it was because it, it was partly coming off the like not another teen movie and stuff like that. So I think people just thought it was like another parody movie. Yeah, like, I, I, spoof, spoofs had kind of been dragged through the mud. Yeah, um, and it came out in around Christmas time, like in December, November, December. So maybe it wasn't the right time for it. But that movie, just every scene works, every joke works. Um, it's just a really funny like. You know, even if you've never seen Ray and Walk the Line, which are the two sort of big touchstones for Walk Hard, um, the film is just really funny. And it's just like because it's 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 hitting because the way it's sort of skewering biopics is just very spot on. The sort of rise, fall, redemption, fall, you know, structure and just using that. And ah, this is a dark fucking period. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's really good and the songs are good that's the other thing yeah. like it has really good like pop star it has really good music so uh and john c Riley's amazing uh i just i i love everything about walk hard yeah me too it's one of my favorite comedies um all right well thank you all so much for listening uh again you can find the collider podcast on wherever you get your podcast from so be sure to subscribe and if you want to keep up with uh what we're talking about you can follow us on twitter adam where can we find you on twitter at Adam Titwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you later this week where we will be talking about the big HBO Max deal and Warner Brothers. And Wait, I'm uh, really hoping Christopher Nolan says some some more nasty catty things. Uh, that'll be fun. So stick around. Uh, we'll be with you later this week. Bye.